Welcome to Talking Jazz. My guest today is pianist, composer, educator, Ellen Rowe. And we're going to talk about some of her fabulous music and writing. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. You know, and we should start out. You've been somebody that I've been looking actually up to for a long time as, as somebody who's pushing the envelope and doing things at a time when it wasn't common to do, meaning you were a professor of piano improvisation leading a jazz department up there in Michigan and that was just not common and is still not common give us a little bit about your background a how did you get in piano and and how did you find your way in this area it was really interesting you know growing up I was the youngest of five kids with two Juilliard trained parents and so there's two pianos in the house and my dad had perfect pitch one of my brothers did I, I grew up with perfect pitch and frankly by the time I came along I think my parents were a little tired of the lessons and, you know, they just kind of kind of let me find my own way, which was great. And, you know, it, it had its bad side too, which was that I probably didn't practice as hard as I might have or gotten my classical technique together the way I, I could have if I'd had lessons. But I just puttered around and I remember playing in my, proudly playing in my junior high jazz band and people, viewers can't see, but I'm doing air quotes around jazz, which was really a jazz rock or rock band playing the Carpenters and, you know, music that is great. I'm not slamming the Carpenters, but it definitely was not jazz. And then when I got to high school, I thought, oh, I'll just keep in the jazz band. And there was a very hip director who took me aside and said, look, you know, you may have all this you know, talent or whatever, but if you don't actually know something about jazz, you're not going to play in my jazz ensemble. And that was like a, a rude awakening. <laughs> it's a good, a good rude awakening. So he sent me off to study with this guy, John Mahegan, that I had never heard of. But John was, put this in context, I mean, there's, of course, Barry Harris and tons of important jazz piano pedagogues at the time. But he was, John was one of the first people to be uh, kind of allowed in an academic institution to teach jazz piano. And he also developed this series of four jazz piano volumes, you know, explaining his methods. So I, you know, I was a neophyte, this, you know, like 14 year old little girl walking in the door getting these lessons. And that, I mean, he scared the heck out of me, but I learned a lot. He introduced me to Bud Powell and Horace Silver and of course, Bill Evans. So that kind of started the ball rolling. And I actually, you know, it became something I was really kind of proud of that because there were, like you said, there were very few other women or young women, especially doing this. I think I was the only woman in my jazz band in high school for, for quite a while. And so, yeah, that's kind of where things got their start. And when I went on to Eastman to do music ed, because my dad was a high school band director and I kind of thought, well, that's what I'll, what I'll do. I just, got, you know, sucked into the jazz program there. And I was definitely the bottom of the ladder there. Uh, and there was all these great players, you know, Lee Musiker and Bill Cunliffe and Daryl Grant and all, you know, just, a, just and so many I could, you know, I could keep going. And so that got me really, really inspired. And then, of course, I got to work with Ray Wright and Bill Dobbins and learn about jazz composition. So that's kind of how, how the whole thing got started. And then I was lucky enough to, I worked on cruise ships for a bit, and then I was lucky enough to get this my first teaching job, which was sort of halftime starting a jazz program, believe it or not, at the University of Connecticut, which was wild. I think I was 24. And, you know, they were entrusting me because Ray Wright had given me a recommendation to start building a, a jazz program there. It was great. I was able to stumble my way around because nobody there really knew any better. So I made a bunch of mistakes and figured things out and eventually got a small program going and was directing the jazz ensemble. So, yeah. And then, you know, when Michigan came along, I it was a hard decision because I grew up in Connecticut, but I thought, what a great opportunity. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. You know, talking about it. So uh, Jamie Baum, who I play with, the food player, also studied with John Mahigan. So she had some stories too. <laughs> I'm sure I have some stories too that maybe can't get, get shared here. I, you know, I've hung out with Jamie and I don't think she and I ever talked about that. How yeah, cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it sometime. Yeah. We'll go to listen to one of your songs, Ain't I a Woman, you know, and this is from a 2019 release. So, you know, we were just talking about your beginnings and right now we're still talking about the same issues, which means <laughs> you know, a very slow moving thing. So this is actually, the whole album is, is tributes to some of our Shiro's. Mm -hmm. And so give, give us a little intro on what we should listen to. And it's something about this, this tune that we're going to listen to. The whole album, like, like you said, are tributes to women because it occurred to me that it was not just musical heroes, Shiro's that inspired me to try to kind of forge this path, but it was sportswomen and women involved in, in politics and civil rights movement and, you know, just all walks of life conservationists that I found super inspiring and kind of encouraged me to just, yeah, do what I believe in. Ain't I a Woman, of course, the title's stolen from Sojourner Truth's autobiography. And I came about because when I got my sabbatical leave back in 2017, when I was start writing the album, we had just had a, an election. I'll, I'll leave it at that. And uh, there was a lot on everybody's mind about what, what was going to happen and the, the fate of the social justice movement 
movement. And it just got me thinking about how little I knew about the women that were involved in the social justice and civil rights movement, you know, throughout history. You know, we know all about the, the male figures and they're certainly extremely important. I decided I'd, I'd like to write a piece in tribute to, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the Mary Bethune Cooks and, and people that, that weren't as well known. And that's really what this, this piece is about. And yeah, so I guess that, you know, and when you hear it, I think that'll kind of, hopefully that will resonate and the connections will be, will be made. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's have a listen. I mean, we'll, we'll have several that we'll listen to the, the next three, but this is from the two 2019 Momentum release, Ain't I a Woman? And it features, of course, Ellen Rowe on piano, but we also have Tia Fuller on saxophone, Virginia Mayhew, Lisa Perot, Jeanette Reichman, Ingrid Jensen on trumpet, Melissa Gardiner on trombone, Marion Hayden on the bass, Marlene Rosenberg on the bass. Which one is actually playing on this track? This is this is Marion Hayden and uh, Alison Miller on drums, and, and Tia, Marion, and Melissa just light this this cut up. Absolutely great harmonies. All right, here we go. Ain't I a woman? Thank you. 
by a woman from the Momentum release by my guest today, Ellen Rowe, who you not only heard on piano, but she also wrote these pieces and wrote these pieces with a purpose because they are dedicated to specific sheroes of us. You know, I, I, I love that sheroes term, obviously, but it, it's, it's so expressive on what it's supposed to say. So this one, it's called Relentless Forward Progression. It sounds like you said you dedicated to the women distance runners. So how, how did that come about? So that is my most serious hobby away from music and teaching, which aren't right. hobbies, but I mean, it is my most serious hobby. And, and it's kind of what keeps my sanity through all this stress is just to go out and do these ultra marathons and just to be out on the trails running in nature is, is great. But there's these amazing women runners. Like, I mean, the first person who really became somebody I, I knew about, because I spent a lot of time in Maine and Joan Benoit Samuelson won the first Olympic woman marathon, which believe it or not, didn't happen until 1984, which is kind of mind blowing when you think about the history of the Olympics. That was the first year that women were allowed to run the full distance, you know, just because, oh, we were so delicate, right? You know, we we're going to break bones or whatever. Joni ran, she was injured when she ran and she still won the whole thing. And she's amazing. She's my age. I think she's 63 or maybe she's a year or two older. And she is still running like sub three hour marathons. So, so she was one of the people that, and she, she gave me, I, I met her before my first Chicago marathon, got to talk with her and she signed my hat and, you know, just, she's such an inspiration. And then there's a couple long distance trail runners, uh, Gunhild Swanson, who ran a, the 100 mile Western States at age 70 and came in under the 30 hour cutoff point. There's a video that anybody listening to this really needs to check out if they want inspiration. And, and they documented her coming across the finish line and all these runners coming to run her in. So she's, you know, she's 70 years old and she's finishing this race in under 30 hours. And then uh, this woman also, who's a, maybe a couple of years younger than I am, who is placing in the top 10 men or women at these ultra distances, Megan Canfield Laws. So I just picked those three, you know, to dedicate this one to. And RFP is Relentless Forward Progress, which is our ultra running mantra. You know, ultra running, that just boggles my mind. I mean, I do run, but not like that. You know, I, I always wonder what keeps you going, like after a certain point when, you know, normal people give up, how, how do you keep going? What's that relentless forward progress? Before you start, I mean, you, you train for it. And I mean, you're always trying to push, you know, your distances a little bit more, a little bit more each, each time. And, and you start believing in yourself that you can do, do the distance. And then you have, you know, they have aid stations out on these races. So, you know, you might run four or five miles and then you get to, to stop for a few, few minutes and these amazing group of volunteers who are cheering you on and encouraging you and feeding you soup or, you know, what standards, whatever you want. And then you take off again. So, it's getting that encouragement and uh, sometimes you can have people running with you, you know, pacers and other times it's just like other runners, you know, in these races, these incredibly inspiring people who are trying to do the same thing you're doing and you just hook up with them and you suffer together. Suffer together. I like that. So how did you translate that in, into music? Well, what do we hear that portrays yeah. that? So in the beginning are kind of what I would call sort of clouds, clouds of sound. And that's sort of like this, you know, you're at the start line and you're just wondering if you can even do this and you're just filled with kind of doubt and it's, you know, 6am in the morning or whatever ridiculous hour. And then gradually, you know, you start to run. And so I, it's, you know, pretty, pretty obvious text painting, but I bass comes in and it's sort of like footsteps. The intervals, musical intervals get bigger and bigger. And that's kind of the footsteps, you know, getting longer, the stride getting longer, you know, some groove kicks in and it's like, you know, kind of in the, in the moment, everything's going well. And then, you know, kind of gets into this celebra celebratory thing. And then towards the end, the clouds come back a little bit. And, you know, so, I mean, I think it's just kind of, I was trying to sort of document what you feel like. The ending isn't quite as celebratory as it should be, but I, I just wanted to kind of end the piece the way I started it. So Okay, so we're all going for a run with this and we're experienced a relentless forward progression or motion. Yes. Well, let's let's give it a try. Here is some relentless forward progress and it's from Momentum, again, the 2019 release on Smoking Sled Dog Records. And again, it's Ellen Rowe on piano. We get the full group here on it, right? Tia Fuller, Virginia Mayu, Lisa Parraj, Jeanette Reichman, Ingrid Jensen, Melissa Gardiner, and who is the bass player this time? This time, I believe it's still Marion. Still yeah, Marion Hayden and Allison Miller on drums. Here we go.
from the album or progression i liked when you said progression because i thought yeah i know that's what that's what i wrote down but it's relentless forward progress from the album momentum and this is by my guest today ellen rowe who you also heard on piano and we're gonna do one more because this is a very special album it's performed by all women it's written by a woman and it's dedicated to the progress and to the achievements from women. This next one that we're going to listen to is actually a really great lineage of our women in jazz and our Shiro's. It's the Soul Keepers, and it's a tribute to Jerry Allen, who we lost way too early, but was just an incredible, incredible pianist. And and all she did is a progression back to Mary Lou Williams. And I actually just read the new book by Deanna Witkowski on Mary Lou Williams, which is wonderful. She did a wonderful job. A lot of things I didn't know, but you work closely with Jerry Allen. You should give us a portrait of her and, and what inspired you here. Boy, yeah. So of course, you know, I wanted to write something to memorialize and celebrate Jerry. And Jerry is coming deeply out of out of Mary Lou and that, like you said, that that lineage. So what was fun for me in this piece was sort of trying to combine elements of, of Mary Lou with, you know, so the boogie woogie and the left hand kind of more typical 
typical blues progression, but Jerry's kind of angularity and her interesting intervallic use. And I was trying to kind of, so have a kind of a modern right hand and a, you know, more traditional left hand and, and kind of make, make that work. But Jerry, boy, I, I mean, what an honor to have her as a colleague. We didn't know each other at all before. And so it was a little bit awkward at first because she was, I was there already teaching piano and she was being brought in because we had some special monies available to bring artists of that stature in. And she was coming in to, to teach jazz piano. And so we kind of, you know, tiptoed around each other for, for a bit. But then when we got to know each other, it was, it was amazing. It became, you know, a really close friendship. And I just learned so much from being around her and the in integrity of everything she did was really inspiring to me. Our students at Michigan, she did the Sunday salons, like one, one a month, just like Mary Lou used to do. And it was amazing. These kids would take on these incredible projects, and not just pianists, but, you know, other horn players would come in and, as well. And she would assign them something really deep and significant to do, you know, five choruses of, you know, Sunny Stitt or, or, or whatever it, it might be. And they would come in and they would you know, because it was her and they wanted to do this for her and they would memorize it and come in and play it blistering tempos or the pianist would take on these Phineas Newborn transcriptions or whatever it might be. So those were really great for our sense of community and also for just raising the kids idea of what they were capable of. Yeah, it was it was just so great to be around her and get to be her friend and colleague and it was one of the darkest days of my life when, when she passed. You know, she was playing till the last minute. She didn't let anybody know. That. No, she didn't. She was very private about it. I got to meet her a few times and just such a beautiful personality that's a, such a great story that that the students were trying to live up to that if you put a model in front of them to inspire like this yeah she was a force a force to be reckoned with mm -hmm. and a beautiful person i actually share a birthday with her and chikoria which is really cool so yeah let's let let's listen to this let's get your boogie boogie with the modern right hand and and all together this is called the soul keepers dedicated to jerry allen and going back to the lineage to mary lou williams and again this is from the wonderful album moment to 2019 on Smoking Sled Dog Records. Here we go.
from the album Momentum and you heard my guest today Ellen Rowe on piano who is also the composer and the mind behind this wonderful album of portraits of wonderful women. Now this was 2019 um, we're going to go jump back in time and, and go to the beginnings and your first album. This is a piece called The Phoenix. Phoenix kind of being the symbol of rebirth something out of the ashes what inspired you here and how about that being on your first album the funny story here is that i was very lucky to spend some a couple summers as a participant at the banff jazz workshop and mm. then i kind of managed to wangle my way on to the to the faculty but while i was up there i got to meet the wonderful canadian bassist pianist vibist drummer, you name it, uh, Don Thompson. We became good friends. And, and I just remember one day he goes, why do you always write such sad music? Why don't you ever write any happy music? And so that just got me thinking, okay, yeah, he's probably right. Every tune I write is, is, is sad for whatever reasons. So I specifically set out to write a happy, a happy piece for Don. And that's, you know, it's in C major and it's a samba, you know, whatever. So it's about as happy as you can get. Very out of character, but it was good for me. So tell us who's playing on that because I'm not sure I got all that info. So the basis on this is a player from Ann Arbor who I love working with, Kurt Crocky. The drummer is a drummer that I play with all the time and a lot of trios and quartets, Pete Sears. The saxophonist is my colleague, Andrew Bishop. So it's all Ann Arbor folks. And yeah, I, at this point, you know, when I moved to Ann Arbor, I had not recorded an album and I had a student who was just on my case constantly. And he was a really good business person. And I got to give a shout out to him, Ben Jonas. He for basically forced me, you know, he, he set up, he got the studio, you know, he kind of helped me set up the studio time. He helped me find a graphic designer. He showed me the ropes in terms of, you know, just getting the CD together. He's to blame. Oh, that's interesting. What, what, what a cool story. And I'm, I mean, he's right. 2001 means you you were already teaching for a minute and, and doing all these things, right? 
1984. Yeah, I mean, I was I moved out to Ann Arbor in 1996, and so yeah, I've been teaching for yeah, you're right, quite quite a while, and and there was no reason not to do an album. It just didn't occur to me. And this kind of thing, I think, that's pretty typical of a lot of women. We don't take ourselves seriously enough, so we don't think, oh, I should be out recording an album. And, you know, instead we're kind of go, ah, nobody wants to listen to me. So you know, thank you, Ben. He's the one who got things going. Well, I'm glad he did. You know, what I think is is doing these albums, these days you don't do it for money or for anything, but it's a it's a snapshot in time and it kind of documents where you are, what you are and what you do. And and it's 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 good to have once you look back, you're going, that's that was an interesting time and I can reflect on everything else that's going on. It, it is. That's a great way to describe it. It's a, it's a snapshot, you know, and I know there's less and less, you know, especially younger people who are playing CDs, but I, you know, I still like the concept that you come out with a product something you can have in your hands. And I love writing liner notes and I love combining the, the art and, you know, so you can really look and see who's on the album. And it's just about to say something like kids these days, but you know, you know, this as well as I do that the students are, you know, listening to all the various streaming services and, you know, getting their music and very, different ways than we did but unfortunately a lot of the time they have no idea who they're listening to when it was recorded anything about the date you know i'm still kind of a fan of albums and cds and liner notes and things like that well let's have a listen this is the phoenix from the 2001 release sylvan way by my guest today ellen rowe here we go
was the Phoenix a Selection from Sylvan Way, a 2001 recording by my guest today, Ellen Rowe. We got one more and I have actually a bunch of more questions to, to get there. So this is not from one of your releases, but an arrangement you did for one of the great big bands of our time, which is the Diva Big Band that has been around since the 80s, no, yeah. 90s? Late 80s, I, I would say. Late 80s, yeah. Right I, I, I think diva is a, is a group it's led by sherry miracle and we, we heard there's actually a talking jazz show with her so we can find out all the details and the exact times the cool thing about this big band is that at a time when it wasn't that common at all she pulled together all women wonderful women to to play called diva and commission pieces especially for this group so it wasn't just taking stock arrangements and, and doing something else but thinking about what do we want to play with that group and and how do we portrait this group with with a special set of music you got to write one of those arrangements for them you know maybe that also gives us a glimpse into your writing and composition style which we haven't talked about too much yet it sounds like a little bit of a challenge you know i feel pretty seems to be more like a cute little melody so how do you do that how do you package that and make it a cool big band arrangement it was very lucky and sherry brought me in pretty pretty early in to do some arrangements and i think i've got maybe six pieces in their in their book right now, or at least they're, they're there. I mean, they've been there for a while. I don't know how many of them they still play, but you know, so that it was a really nice opportunity to both get a chance to write and write for such a great band and to get to know Sherry and get to know all the women in the band. But part sometimes what they did is one of the people who was also very important in terms of bringing the band together was a guy named Stanley Kay. And Stanley and Sherry worked together closely, you know, from the business and musical standpoint to, to get the band together and get them on the road and get them playing and Stanley would often get in touch with me once you know we had decided what tune I was going to arrange and get on the phone and you go okay so I have this idea so do da da do ba do ba do da and and so I'd be listening to the ideas kind of kind of write them down and and you know part of me was going well I'd really like to write my own arrangement but then part of me is going he's you know helping run the band and I better you know take take stock and and he's a music, great jazz musician himself and so you know I'm going to pay attention so he did actually that's the lick that I used to start the piece and I'm pretty sure if my memory is correct here that that he sang something like that idea in my ear over the phone from there on out it was it, it was mine yeah I was just trying to think of some things that would make it unique and not exactly like the original tune so I took it into 4-4 uh, I had a little moment where the rhythm section drops out and it's just brass and yeah just trying to you know there's a little Gary Manilow modulation at the end when you know just take it up a half step but yeah it was it was fun it became something that I I was really proud of you know I'm, I'm really proud of the way it turned out and and especially since I didn't really like the tune to begin with so just have it you have to work through that stuff but but yeah it was a challenge and it was in it and it was fun fun to do and fun to make make work and you know I re I reharmonized it and did some things like that but I think the tune is still pretty evident, even, even with the rearm. Well, I mean, it, it is a classic, but I, I love that, you know, taking on a challenge of something that you're not completely convinced and making it something cool. Yeah, it's a good challenge. You know, writing is probably, I mean, one of the really powerful aspects of, of what you do, knowing that. How do you approach that? How do you compose? <laughs> do you have a special inspiration? What's, what's some of your techniques well when it comes to, to big band i i really do enjoy the challenge of arranging i mean i write a few original you know things myself and in fact i've got that one i just finished developing bands for jen i'm very thrilled to have been asked to, to write that and so i just finished that and I, I will say that writing for younger bands is at least three times as difficult as writing for pro bands so i just sweated bullets over trying to make sure that it was going to be playable for the for the young ones yeah i mean i was lucky at eastman to study with ray wright and, and bill bobbins as well but ray was my primary writing teacher and just introduced us all to the techniques at thad jones and bob brookmeyer and sammy nestico oliver nelson you know all all the important writers and so we got those sounds in our in our ears in terms of big band writing. And he also talked a lot about form and development. We looked at Bill Homan's writing, Claire Fisher, you know, just just it was a really wonderful education. For me, the trick is to get a flow happening and to try to keep things fresh and not predictable and, you know, changing bar lengths and adding, you know, deceptive resolutions and the whole the whole thing. And and I think the joy for me too is 
being, I was a music ed education major undergrad, and I'm very, very grateful for that because I learned to play all the instruments very badly, but I learned to play them all. And so, you know, that, that gave me some insights into, you know, writing for them because I knew things that were hard to do on them and things you shouldn't do on them and, you know, how bad it sounded to try certain notes and hold them for bars and bars. So that, I think the combination of having that incredible jazz composition arrange, arranging pedagogy and then being music ed and then being a pianist. I mean, a, a pianist makes it so much easier, right? You can just sit down and, oh, wow, look at this great eight note brass voicing. It sounds beautiful on the piano. I bet it's going to sound really nice on the, on the horns. I feel really fortunate that you know, all those things have worked in my favor, I think. Yeah, I have the Ray Wright book, a classic and the basis of all composition arranging classes for sure. You know, I mean, I'm a troglodyte. I still write with pencil and paper and, you know, when I need to copy. I mean, I, I've got Dorico downloaded on, on my computer and I suppose I should learn Sibelius, but I just love putting notes on the page myself. And so at this point, I'm trying to just get commissions so that I can afford to farm out you know, to, to true copyists to have them do that. But I just love putting the notes on the page myself. So agree. There's something special about, about sitting there with the pencil and... <laughs> Student composition where they've just sat at their computer and hit the keys, you know, and have not been at a piano or have not put the notes on the page themselves. There's a, there's a difference when you're putting it on. I use my little credit card to get all the stems straight and everything looks, you know, very nice. What's next? What are, what are you working on right now? What's coming up? Well, since Momentum got elected to play at the Gen Conference coming up, Jazz Education Network, I will, of course, which you know a ton about and are heavily, heavily involved in, in the administration and the board and everything. So I'm writing a new piece for them that will add Regina Carter to the mix. Excited about that. That should be done in the next week. I've got another, hopefully another big band younger developing big band piece that I'm going to be working on. And I would really like to get back to writing for some pro pro big bands as well. I'm hoping some of, some of those things will happen. And then I, I think probably the next personal project, I'd like to do a second album for Momentum, but that's I've got to save up my money for that. And I think I would like to get a trio album out. I haven't done a trio album since that first one. I think that's the next thing up will be. I agree. You should do that. Trio <laughs> album next. That's what I'll do. Thank you, Alan, for spending your time with me and, and sharing a lot of insights in, into your music. That was really, really special. Well, thank you for having me on. This this radio show is such a great idea. It's so wonderful. All right. So last one is Ellen Rose's arrangement of I Feel Pretty. And this is from the 1999 Diva release, I Believe in You. Thanks again, Ellen. Thank you, Monica. It's been a pleasure. Good luck with, good luck with everything. And I will see you soon. We'll see you in a month or so. See you soon, everybody else. Dallas in January, 5 to 8 for the Gen Conference and much more to come. I feel pretty. Here we go.
was pianist, composer, educator, Ellen Rowe. Tune in for Talking Jazz every Thursday at 11 a.m. and every Monday at 7 p.m. right here on WETF 105.7 FM in South Bend, Indiana or online at wetfthejazzstation.org. Also find videos of previous shows on YouTube on the Monica Hersick channel. That's M-O-N-I-K-A-H-E-R-Z-I-G. Subscribe to get the newest updates. Thank you for listening.